Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. California's landmark clean energy law has been attacked as a job killer by oil companies and conservative politicians. Now it's facing a challenge from the political left. Environmental justice advocates claim the law, known as AB 32 or Assembly Bill 32, threatens public health in disadvantaged communities. The state's plan to cap and trade permits to emit carbon pollution should be modified, they say, and a judge earlier this year agreed their case has merit. California won the next round in court, but the legal wrangling continues. For the next hour, we'll discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of cap-and-trade with our live audience in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club and experts on both sides of the litigation. Edie Chang is with the Office of Climate Change at the California Air Resources Board, the main state agency responsible for implementing uh, climate, the California's climate law. Kristen Eberhardt is a lawyer with the Natural Resources Defense Council, which supports cap-and-trade. Bill Gallegos is executive director of the Communities for a Better Environment, one of the plaintiffs in the suit. And Brent Newell is general counsel of the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, and I believe is the lead counsel, lead lawyer in the case. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, Kristen Eberhard, let's begin with you. If you could just provide sort of a, a quick summary of AB 32, California's Global Warming Solutions Act. What is it and what does it do? AB 32 was passed in 2006. It requires the state to reduce greenhouse gas emissions back to 1990 levels by 2020. Um, so that's an ambitious goal um, that requires us to really transform our economy to a clean energy economy. It has um, the, the agency that ED works for has been implementing it for the past uh, five years and has put forward a plan that includes 70 different measures, doing everything from making our cars cleaner to making the fuels that we put in our cars cleaner, um, encouraging more renewable energy in the state, more energy efficiency in order to transform our economy to a clean energy economy um, in the coming decades. So, Brent Newell, cap-and-trade is just one one lever in that whole suite of tools, toolbox for AB 32. Uh, so tell us about this litigation and, and why you brought this suit. Well, I think Bill can answer this question really well, but um, the, the bottom line is that the environmental justice community in California has long supported AB 32. In fact, we were instrumental in getting the law passed, and we were instrumental 
in the coalition of groups that stopped Proposition 23 from... Which was a ballot initiative to basically uh, kill AB 32. That's absolutely right. Um, So we very much want to see greenhouse gases reduced because poor people and people of color, not just in California and not just in the United States, but worldwide, will suffer a disproportionate burden from the effects of global warming. So we want to see this law implemented, and we want to see it implemented correctly. The problem is that the agency has selected what is called cap-and-trade as the main component of its strategy for reducing these emissions. So while there are 70 rules, cap-and-trade gets about 20% of the reduction. So it's the largest and most important measure. And Bill can say why we actually had to go to court. Bill Gallegos, tell us about him. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, I I do want to just echo what um, Brent was saying, is that we're very supportive of AB 32, and right now it's the only game in town. It doesn't look like we're going to have an international treaty. It's going to be very difficult. Federal uh, climate and energy legislation is dead in the water. So we are the standard right now, and we want to make that standard as strong as possible. But we don't want to do it at the expense of poor communities of color. And uh, we worked very, very hard as a member of the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee which is mandated by AB 32 to advise the Air Resources Board on developing a plan which would maximize the benefits to the communities that presently are the most polluted and would minimize any negative impacts from any of the measures adopted by AB 32. And we worked for years on that committee. Um, that's where we got to know Edie. And uh, with, with no resources from the state, where these are poor nonprofit organizations, and made a number of very, I think, uh, extensive recommendations and critiques to help the ARB in its, in, to develop its final scoping plan. And unfortunately for the industrial sector, our uh, recommendations were ignored. And we felt that they were ignored without substantive consideration. And so we, 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 we felt that the only alternative that we had was to go to court. But we didn't go to court. I, there's no equivalency between the business folks that want to just kill AB32 and what we're trying to do. We went to court because we want to strengthen it and strengthen it from the, from the standpoint of the folks who are now suffering the worst from California's air quality. And we wanted to ensure that, for example, as we're reduce, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, let's get the other stuff that's really choking people and killing them right now, the mercury, the benzene, the NOx, the sulfur oxides, the particulate matter. We have a chance to do something good, and unfortunately, the Air Resources Board has not seized that opportunity, and we, we're still hoping that they will. Edie Chang? You're with the Air Resources Board, your response to the, to the suit. And can AB 32 be made better in the way that they're asking? Well, I was actually going to, the first thing I was going to say was I think that the title of the panel, cap and trade, fixable or fatally flawed, I, I think that part of it is cap and trade. I think it, it presupposes that there's a problem with cap and trade. Um, we did take a look. At, well, first thing that I want to say is that, as Christian pointed out, is that we do have a comprehensive strategy that we are implementing to address climate change in California. And it includes a whole host of measures, including the cap-and-trade. As Brent mentioned, cap-and-trade gets about 20% of the emission reductions, but it's not the biggest measure in the plan. We've also got plans to reduce greenhouse gases from cars. You may have seen there was um, a recent announcement that the federal government in California, California was instrumental in the negotiations with the federal government and the car companies, to implement lower greenhouse gas standards for cars starting in 2017. And that's something that's going to be, I think, really push us towards 
um, moving to lower petroleum dependency as we move out into the future. There's also a 33% renewable portfolio standard, low carbon fuel standard. So the renewable portfolio standard is for electricity generation. The renewable portfolio standard. So what it means is that 33% of the electricity that's delivered to retail customers has to come from renewable resources. So cap-and-trade is an important component of the program, but it's definitely not the only component of the program. And I just want to jump in here to make sure we have this in the proper context. So um, cap-and-trade is 20%, which is one-fifth. Some of the other regulations, Evie mentioned, the regulations on the the transportation sector are more than a third of the emissions. The regulations on the electricity sector, which includes renewable energy and energy efficiency, are nearly a third. So cap-and-trade is, is not the biggest part of this program. It's one-fifth of the program. I, I guess I need to do a double jump here because it's true. <laughs> it's 20%, but it's the industrial sector. So where do folks live in Richmond, for example, right near the Chevron refinery, 3,000 acres of chemical poison? Where do folks live in, in uh, Wilmington and Carson and some of these poor communities of color, near power plants? near oil refineries, near manufacturing centers. So when we say it's 20%, 20% in California is a hell of a lot. We have a huge industrial energy infrastructure, and a lot of poor folks of color live near those sources, and we have an obligation to try to help make things better for them because they are suffering enormous public health impacts from the pollutions that they're, that they're suffering from, that they're um, uh, subject to right now. And we feel the Air Resources Board has a chance to do something about that, still has a chance to do something about that, but hasn't done it so far. What do you want from the Air Resources Board, Bill Gallegos? We want regulations. We want, we want for example, uh, uh, oil refineries and other em- emitters of methane, which is the most potent uh, uh, greenhouse gas, they pretty much get a free pass. So why don't we capture our methane emissions? Why don't we regulate our methane emissions? That would give us about a million tons towards our goal for uh, AB32. So that's an easy one. That's one, just one example. And I want to say that we ourselves, just in this last round, submitted 60 pages of comments, and, and that which showed how we could actually exceed uh, the goals of AB32 for the industrial sector. So there's a number of things that can be done. But I think what we have to do is we have to look at what's, what does the evidence show. Where have we, in, in California's history, where have we been most effective in reducing emissions, reducing pollution, is when we had regulatory measures that provided a certainty to the industry, a certainty to the market, and really re- resulted in actual direct verifiable emission reductions. So we're just saying let's, let's use that evidence and let's develop a really a, a system of regulatory measures that could get us to where we want to go in a much better way than without the risk of cap and trade. For example, cap and trade has an offset provision. So that means that folks can just say, well, okay, we're uh, Chevron, for example. We're not going to reduce our emissions right now. We're going to go, I don't know, plant some trees in Oaxaca. And in 20 years, it will give us the equivalent amount of emission reductions as we would have had if we would installed best available technology over here in Chevron, uh, over here in Richmond, or replaced our 70-year-old boilers. Well, we say that's risky. Why don't you just replace the 70-year-old boilers? Why don't you put in some clean technology? Why don't you change your energy supplies? Chevron is the largest industrial energy user in the state. Why don't they go solar? That would have an enormous impact on air quality. It would have an enormous impact on health. It would have an impact on the economy because they could put people to work. So we're just saying, why don't we use a more common-sense approach and really take into account the existing burden of environmental racism for the uh, communities of color in California? So let's let Edie Chang come in here. There's a couple there. You want regulations on methane. That was one. And some others. So Edie Chang, could methane be regulated? 
Uh, methane and methane is regulated in some, but I, I actually want to get back to sort of the cap and trade for it. We got like double interrupted. I, I think one of the key points in the cap and trade program is that it provides an enforceable and declining cap on greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that's a really important factor, as Kristen mentioned. The goal of AB 32 is to reduce emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. And by setting a cap on greenhouse gas emissions, we know we're going to get emission reductions. So we know that industrial sources are going to have to reduce their emissions in order to meet that cap. Um, the scoping plan does include some direct measures in different areas, and we are always continuing to evaluate those measures. So there are, we have been looking at measures. There are some sectors that we're looking at both, for example, efficiency programs as well as um, including them as cap sectors. And we're also initiating a rulemaking to ensure that of the 70 largest industrial sources in the state, they're going to have to implement the cost-effective greenhouse gas reductions. And programs like that will make sure that localized communities experience um, air quality benefits from the program in addition to the cap from the cap-and-trade program. seems that one of the tensions here is is that there's sort of this uh, carbon dioxide methane, which which is kind of a, a global problem, mm-hmm. and we have very uh, and a long-term global uh, challenge, which is climate change, and some very localized uh, issues and pollutants that directly affect people today, which that seems, Bill, you seem most concerned about localized pollutants that a- affect AB32 people. AB32 says that. It says let's maximize the benefits for the most overpolluted communities. It's not, it's not a, it's not something that we just came up with. The law was written with a lot of input from the environmental justice community precisely for that reason. We said, look, we have a real a chance here. As we're capturing these greenhouse gas emissions, let's capture the other emissions. And when we hear people say, well, we have existing laws for that, well, they ain't working. They're not working. It's a public health disaster in Richmond. Childhood asthma rates, cancer rates, low birth weights, miscarriage. So let's do something. And so we're saying we have a chance to do that. Let's seize that opportunity. Let's not take the risk with with the cap-and-trade programs. They've been very risky. The evidence is really iffy on, on cap-and-trade, even in Europe. So why don't we, why don't we do something where there's uh, a proven impact? You know, we, we know that regulatory measures will do it. They're direct, they're verifiable, they're transparent. And, of course, you know, large uh, industrial sources like the oil industry can certainly afford these things. And they should because they've contributed to the problem so enormously. Uh, Greg, Greg oh, yeah, I want to jump in because, um, you know, one thing Edie said about their cap-and-trade program, she talked about the cap. The cap is great. Let's require these industrial facilities to reduce their emissions. The problem is the trade. They allow these facilities, instead of reducing their emissions on site, the direct regulation strategy that we advocate, that Bill is talking about, instead of reducing emissions on site and benefiting the communities of Wilmington and Richmond and Carson, et cetera, they allow these facilities to go out and get the vast majority of the reductions that they're supposed to achieve from some kind of tree planting operation in Chiapas, some kind of forestry management project up in Canada, uh, out-of-state emission reductions. So instead of having a public health benefit in California's most polluted communities, what we end up doing is exporting the jobs that could be reducing the emissions in-state. We're exporting jobs and they're allowing these facilities to supposedly comply with the cap by buying offsets or emission reduction credits. 
So Chris, I kind of want to jump Chris in here. Yeah. <laughs> would you prefer localized reductions in state California rather than out of state? Absolutely. Um, but let me be really clear about the role of regulations and the role of cap and trade. So, so Bill and, and Brent have said regulations ensure that you're getting reductions in state. They ensure that you're getting them in the communities that need those reductions the most. ED has said cap and trade gives a hard cap on emissions. So the way that those two programs work together within AB 32 is 80% of the reductions are coming from regulations, coming from regulations that say cars in California have to be cleaner. The power that we buy in California has to be cleaner. 20% is coming from cap and trade, which acts as a backstop. And is also a regulation. It's also a regulation, but not in the way that Brent and Newell are talking about. Yeah. Um, it acts as a backstop, and it does two really important things. First, it says you cannot emit any more than this cap. We're capping it here. We have to reduce emissions, and there's no way out. This, the, the second thing it does is it sends a signal to the market so that it's not just saying, let's use the technologies that we have today and put these scrubbers on these plants, do the things that we know how to do at refineries, which we should do. It's saying, let's go beyond that and send a signal to the market so that we bring the technologies of tomorrow. Implement the technologies of today, but also send the signal to bring the technologies of tomorrow. Um, that 20% is what's really planning for our future and sending the signal that is going to make Chevron say, you know, I can't just keep patching together this plant. Um, this cap is bearing down on me. Prices are going up for this pollution, and I have to find a way to become cleaner. And then they're going to go out and find that way to become cleaner. And uh, so the regulations, um, you know, part of the reason that the cap, as this just 20% of the program, is so powerful in this way is that it means that CARB, um, which is a state agency, and as we all know, the state is in a budget crisis and has been cutting employees. CARB isn't able to replace um, the employees that they're losing right now, so they're understaffed. Um, under direct regulation, they have to go out and say, okay, are you doing this? Are you doing this? You know, what, what are your emissions? Are you doing it? Are you doing it? And part of the reason that we have an air crisis in California right now is because regulators don't have the information and the resources that they need to go out and enforce the laws that are on the books in the way that they would like to. Um, so what cap and trade does is says, we're going to send a signal to the market so that all CARP has to do is say, are we reaching the cap? And then it's up to the players in the market, the Chevrons, the entrepreneurs, um, the new clean energy companies to come in and find the solutions. Edie Chang, it sounded like Brent Newell was talking about cap and dividend or some, something, the trade part is, is, the, is the problematic part. Is there an alternative to trading? Could it be a cap and dividend system, which has been proposed nationally by Senator Cantwell and others? Is that something California looked at? Well, that sort of gets into, I think the cap and dividend really gets into sort of how do you use the, re the revenue. Where does from, the money go? Yeah, where, do you, where does the money, money go from a cap and trade program? Um, in California, the legislature has the authority to appropriate funds. We have made recommendations for how those funds should be used. I think a really, from the beginning, we thought that a really critical component of that is looking at some sort of community benefit feature to that, to looking at whether there are things that we can do if we have funds that come in that can improve public health in communities. I think the other part of it that we had an expert panel of, econ of economists look at what would be good uses of that revenue, and a big component of their recommendation is returning money to California consumers as well. Bill Gallegos, returning money to communities, would that soften the impact that you you're concerned You can't about? buy people's health. Come on. I, but I want to just say a little bit about this whole market thing. Look, how did California's economy get into the tank? It wasn't because we're overregulated. Because of hedge funds, Goldman Sachs. Bank of America, AEG, tank the national economy. 
millions of risky transactions, speculations, you know, new uh, securities uh, instruments. What do you think is going to happen here in California with this huge industrial infrastructure? Millions of stock, millions of trading transactions going on all the time. Who's going to monitor that? ARB? They got 30 staff allocated for the cap and trade program. They're going to monitor these millions of transactions. And of course, there's no democratic component to this because there's no oversight for all of this. So I, we just think this, why, why adopt such a risky system, such a risky venture and trust to the market, which has not been very trustworthy from the last time I looked. We got 14 to 25 million people unemployed, and California has the worst. And, and I just want to say something in favor of the regulatory system, is we had one of the most ro- one of the most robust regulatory systems in the country and one of the most vibrant economies until this latest round of, of recession. So I just think that the, what we've been trying to argue is what we think is the more common sense approach. Let's do something that is easier to implement, easier to in- administer, easier to monitor, and will stimulate competition in the market. We'll actually send a signal to the market because you'll know the, what you have to do to get your reductions and by when. And that will stimulate competition among the entrepreneurs that want to sell the technology for reductions and for, you know, all the other pieces of this, of this, uh, of such a regulatory system. So we think there's a better way to go. You know, I just, I just want to say that from our point of view, we're just not ready to trust the, the health and the livelihoods of millions of poor people of color in California to the whims of the market. Christian Eberhard, Natural Resources Defense Council, supported a national cap-and-trade system. And, and the concerns that Bill Gallegos voiced have been shared by a lot of other people who worried about Wall Street gaming the system, creating the largest derivatives market in the world, trading something you can't see, smell, or, or touch. Uh, and some traders have said, yeah, we can game this system. Uh, so, I mean, aren't those legitimate concerns about the trading part could be really, there were problems in Europe. Uh, and maybe California can learn from uh, Europe's lessons. But the trading part is kind of squirrely. So there are, there are concerns with markets, and CARB has been very cognizant of those concerns and has taken them to, into account. And we, in some ways, are lucky that we had the European Union go first and we were able to learn from their mistakes. Um, but let's go back a little bit even further than the European Union and look at another cap-and-trade program which was implemented at the federal level in the United States, which was the acid rain program, which has been operating since 1990 and with huge benefits for the air and the health of Americans, um, as well as doing it at much lower cost than was predicted originally, which means that in addition to having cleaner Mm -hmm. air, we also now have more money in our economy to even push the ball further on on innovation. So uh, a cap-and-trade system is is by no means proven um, to be gameable. And, and CARB has, has done some specific things to make sure that this program is safer than others. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the European Union, one of their main problems was that they started the program without good data. So they started the program out and said, we're going to make an estimate of how many emissions there are. And they estimated wrong. They guessed. They yeah. guessed. <laughs> and so then they gave out allowances based on a wrong guess. So CARB looked at that and said, well, that's crazy. Um, we're not going to do that here in California. And they have been collecting data for three years on emissions in California. So they have good, hard data on what those emissions are. They're not going to make a guess when we start this program out. Um, another specific example of something that failed with the European Union system was they had offsets, which um, Brent mentioned is a big concern with cap-and-trade and has also been a concern for um, NRDC um, in implementing this cap-and-trade program. Um, the European Union had offsets that were, A, international, 
so they were far away from the, the people who were trying to figure out what was going on, um, and B, were a case-by-case analysis. So anybody could come and say, you know, I'm going to do something, and it's going to reduce some emissions. You know, what do you think about that, board? And then the board had to go case-by-case and say, well, does this reduce emissions? Is this not? What's going on in China? I don't know. And, and as a result, people were able to, to game the system and to, to build factories just to shut them down and say, hey, we built a factory, and then we shut it down. We've reduced emissions. Um, and because the board was, was, was not in China and didn't know what was going on in the economy there, um, they gave credit for these things, and that was a travesty. CARB has taken a different approach and has said, we are not going to do this case-by-case, far-away international stuff. There are no international offsets right now in the California system. Um, They have to be inside California or the United States. And there are only four sets of very strict rules um, that have been developed over the course of many years with much public input that say very specifically, if you want an offset, this is what you do. You have to follow these rules exactly, um, and, and we have proven, you know, we have looked into these and think that they work. So CARB has, has done a lot to really protect against the mistakes that have been made in the past, and we have every reason to think that this program is going to uh, be an example of how cap-and-trade can work, just like the acid rain program. Kristen Eberhard is a lawyer with NRDC, and we are also discussing uh, California's climate law with Edie Chang from the California Air Resources Board. Bill Gallegos, from, Bill Gallegos from the Communities for a Better Environment, and Brent Newell from the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. Edie Chang, who's going to be the cop? Who's the watchdog that's going to be watching this trading? Does California have a regulatory entity that's going to be watching all this trading of, uh, of uh, carbon permission uh, pollution permits? Right. So the Air Resources Board, it's our regulation. So we have the primary enforcement role. Um, we have been working really closely with um, the Attorney General's office, as well as federal agencies like the uh, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. We've been consulting with the SEC and other organizations to look at what kinds of things they're doing, what kinds of things that we ought to do. Um, we're also um, we are also setting up systems to make to help us monitor the market. So we're going to have an independent market monitor that is going to be monitoring the transactions that are going on, looking for behavior that's unusual and alerting us to that so that we can work with the Attorney General's Office and the CFTC on enforcement of these issues. Have the two sides tried to negotiate a settlement here, say, to really sit down and say, look, we want this, we can give that? Has that happened? Did it break down? Is that why it got into the court? Well, we, we uh, negotiations. We were on the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee. We spent two and a half years uh, engaging with uh, the Air Resources Board. In fact, we actually had a good working relationship with folks from the NRDC, some of the NRDC staff who worked with us on developing recommendations for oil refineries. And we worked with CARB staff, which mm-hmm. actually seemed to agree with us, and then somehow they were lost in the ozone. They were just you know, all of those measures were ignored. Those recommendations were ignored for the cap-and-trade system. But, you know, which even to today, I mean, we'd be more than willing to sit down and talk about this stuff, but we engaged in that process in good faith. And, again, I mean, CBE is a little more privileged than a lot of environmental justice organizations. We do have uh, scientists on staff. We have attorneys on staff as well as organizers. But a lot of the folks on the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee and the Environmental Justice Movement are small mom-and-pop operations, don't have a lot of resources. Dr. Henry Clark in Richmond been toiling in the fields for 30 years. He has a staff of two, but he was there all the time. He he worked hard to help us uh, take up our responsibility to advise CARB. So I think there was engagement, and we tried to negotiate. I mean, in that process, there was a lot of discussions about how can we make this work, what can we do. 
you know, these are our recommendations. What do you think? I mean, there was a lot of back and forth process. We responded when there was the inv- uh, economic analysis. We had we brought in uh, expert testimony to to look at you know what what that ana- uh, what was uh, problematic in the analysis and what was what was sound in that analysis. The same with the public health analysis. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say our, we, we've shown an, an amazing willingness to engage with the ARB on this. We, we really only file the lawsuits as a last resort. I mean, you know, this it's not what we want to do. And, you know, our our hope was we just we had the, there was a major hearing of the Air Resources Board on August uh, 24th, and we brought up, I don't know, a couple hundred people ourselves and CRPE and some of our environmental justice allies, folks from the community, uh, old, young uh, African American, Asian, Latino, white. Uh, we had uh, just incredibly, I think, persuasive testimony of urban and rural about the impacts of the of the pollution burden that they're f- suffering now. We had expert testimony, scientific testimony, legal testimony. It was very comprehensive, and it just, you know, at the end, it just felt like uh, it was being ignored. I mean, you just. You know, I think what what that testimony said to the Air Resources Board and to the public of California is that there is deeply entrenched environmental racism that we have to address as a society. That the folks who suffered the worst in California from our pollution burden are poor people of color and women. And we have a responsibility to do something about that. And AB 32 gives us a chance to do something for Mother Earth, but also the people who live in Mother Earth in poor communities. And that's, you know, it would just, uh, it's unfortunate, but we you know we're not going away. Nobody left there discouraged or demoralized when, when the, the board voted unanimously to go forward with cap and trade. Uh, but we realize that there's a lot of changes that have to take place, including our governance system. We have to make it more democratic. There was not a person up on that Air Resources Board who shares the reality of the folks in these communities who are going to be impacted by their decision. They're all mostly white and mostly privileged. Uh, Kristen Eberhard, do you agree that the people who have been most affected are the disadvantaged people of color in these neighborhoods that are closest to refineries uh, and energy plants? Well, let's be clear about what they're affected by. I agree that this is a problem, um, not just in California, but um, around the world, that the poorest people are the ones who are most affected by pollution. Um, and, and that is unfair. And it's, it's a problem that if we want to remain strong as a, as a country, we have to figure out a way to solve that. Um, that is a pre-existing problem. AB 32 is, a, is one bill that is trying to bite away at one aspect of that problem. It does not promise to solve everything. It does not promise to solve all inequity in California. It can't. I don't, I don't say it's going to do that. CARB doesn't say it's going to do that. What it is going to do, though, is reduce pollution in California. And and that is going to help people. That is going to help make the air cleaner. I can't guarantee that it is going to reduce pollution at one particular plant or the, the pollution for one particular person. Um, but I can guarantee that it is going to reduce pollution in the state of California and that um, communities are going to benefit from that. And, and just to, to put a little bit more meat on the bones there, one of the most important um, sectors for disadvantaged communities is refineries. And refineries, uh, they, they spew out a lot of pollution that has uh, huge health impacts for people living near them. Refineries are located almost exclusively in disadvantaged poor communities in California. So this means that even if I can't guarantee one refinery in particular is going to reduce, if we are squeezing down on pollution in California, some refinery is going to reduce. 
which means that somebody in one of those communities is going to benefit. And if we keep going along this path where we squeeze down and squeeze down and reduce and reduce, um, and in particular, if we keep going down this path where Chevron looks around and says, well, this isn't just a regulation that says install the scrubbers that are available now or install the boiler that's available now. I know exactly what to do and I'll reduce by 10% and I'm done. I've met the requirements of the regulation and I'm done. 10%, an important improvement for communities, um, but not enough. What AB32 is saying to Chevron is think bigger. Think beyond the scrubber or the boiler that's available now. We are going to keep coming at you. This cap is going to keep declining. You are going to have to think bigger and think of a whole new way of doing this. You're going to have to reduce your pollution by 50% or 90% by 2050. Um, this isn't just about getting the 10% now. It's about transforming our economy by 2050. Greg, I want to I get Brent a chance Newell. to respond yeah. to this because um, what I'm hearing from Kristen, who is a staff attorney at a national environmental group, what I'm hearing from her is, Trust the market. The market's going to solve the problem. What I hear from her is, we fixed Europe's problems. And what I also hear from her is that uh, a sulfur trading program that happened on the East Coast is somehow evidence that cap-and-trade works. Okay. What she is saying is an example of the kind of institutional and structural racism that is plaguing uh, California. It is a hypothesis that cap-and-trade will work. So Kristen's, you know, trust us statement that the market will save us, um, especially after the, the, the debacle that caused our Great Recession. I, I can't follow that, Kristen. I'm sorry. Um, the point that the Clean Air Act is going to save us or the Clean Air Act is somehow evidence that cap-and-trade is going to work, it's just false. The Clean Air Act has a program called New Source Review. New Source Review allows the concentration of pollution that is creating this problem right now in Wilmington, in Carson, in Richmond. New Source Review basically says, if you're a big facility and you emit a lot of pollution, you have to do the best pollution controls. Anything that's left over, all the pollution that's causing these health problems that people are complaining about, all that pollution that's left over, that has the same pollution trading scheme that they want to put in California now for greenhouse gases. New Source Review has the same pollution trading scheme. So what happens when the Richmond refinery wants to expand? They go out and they buy offsets from some dry cleaners that are closing down in San Jose. Okay, What that does is it concentrates pollution in that community. When that refinery wants to expand under cap-and-trade, what are they going to do? They're going to do the same thing. They're going to buy offsets from some other place, somewhere else, and Richmond is going to get stuck with it. What the Air Resources Board and what NRDC and Environmental Defense Fund are saying to the poor people and people of color in California is that you have to get in the back of the bus. You have to subsidize these major polluting industries with your lungs. You have to make it feasible for them to do a low-cost carbon reduction scheme. And that's not acceptable. It violates people's civil rights. Congress, in 1964, as part of the Civil Rights Act, said that people should not be discriminated against by entities that receive federal funding. Their resources board gets federal money. It is a violation of the Civil Rights Act 
that they are telling poor people and people of color that they're supposed to breathe more pollution so Chevron can buy offsets from out of state, from somewhere else. This is not acceptable. It's environmental racism. Edie Chang or Kristen Everhart? Chang? I don't, I don't, I guess I don't agree with your, I, I just don't agree with your contention. I think as, as the cap goes down, everyone's going to have to reduce emissions. There's, under the cap and trade program, increasing emissions is going to cost you more money. And there's also, as I said, we're also looking at, in addition to supplement the cap, you know, we're, we're looking at a, it's an over 20% reduction between now and 2020. Everybody's going to have to reduce emissions. There are what are called offsets in the program, but even when you take those offsets into account, the cap is going to decline. We're going to see emission reductions in California over that time. And I think the other component of it is we are looking at regulations to require that if you've got those cost-effective reductions in these communities, in the, at these industrial sources, they're going to have to be made. Well, the problem with what you said, Edie, is that it's, the reductions are going to come throughout California. Mm-hmm. These facilities are located in communities of color aren't going to see the reductions. They're going to come from somewhere else because of offsets. Well, but, and, so and that's that's sort of this, this problem with this uh, white tower institutional philosophy that some of these big environmental groups have is that, oh, we're going to solve the problem for everybody. And you poor people in Richmond, don't worry. The free market's going to take care of you. Let me and just, that's not going to work. Let me, let me jump in here. Okay. Because the free Brent, market Brent has just called me a rich racist. So <laughs> as a rich racist, let me try and re-clarify what I said. So Brent, maybe you didn't listen to what I said. You think that I said, trust the markets. What I actually said is this program is 80% regulation. So the lawsuit that, that we saw was, was about the alternatives that CARB looked at for ways that they could get to our clean energy goals. The alternatives that CARB looked at were 100% cap and trade, which is the bill that we saw at the federal level, which got defeated. They looked at a carbon tax. They looked at 80% regulations and 20% cap and trade, and they looked at 100% regulations. So between the range of 100% cap and trade and 100% regulations, they picked 80% regulations and 20% cap and trade. That is not saying the markets will solve all our problems. I also didn't say the Clean Air Act will solve all our problems. I said we have a clean air crisis in California. And the Clean Air Act, it has a trading component, but it also is majority direct regulations. The direct regulations that you think under AB 32 could solve all of our problems. My contention is we cannot solve all of our problems with one act. We have to come at this with a variety of tools, and that is what AB 32 is doing. It's coming at it with 80% regulations, and one of the regulations, by the way, is a direct regulation on refiners that says you have to look at your processes and look at where you could make energy-efficient improvements, and then you have to do those things. So every refiner in the state, in every community that is polluted, is going to have to look at their emissions and come up with better ways of doing that. That's a regulation that is independent of cap-and-trade. In addition, cap-and-trade is going to make every unit of pollution they put out more expensive for them. So if Chevron is thinking of expanding, this program makes it harder for them to expand, not easier. This program says you are going to have to pay for every unit of pollution that you put into your community. That is going to make Chevron think long and hard about putting more units of pollution into the community. And that's not an ivory tower. That's a reality that Chevron, if they have to pay for every unit of pollution, which right now they don't, 
Right now, they do not pay for their pollution. AB 32 is going to make them pay. Bill Gallegos, do you agree? Let me just jump in here, Brent. I wanted to say something about uh, oil refining, Chevron. Let's take Chevron as an example. They're not scared. We just spent three years trying to stop them from expanding their refinery in Richmond, where they wanted to start refining dirtier grades of crude oil. They did not seem scared at all. We had to take them on in the streets, in the courts, at the state legislature, and uh, it, it took an enormous campaign. I think this is the first, this first time Chevron's lost in a long time. We stopped that project, but they want the trend is not in our favor. The oil refineries are going towards refining dirtier grades of crude oil. Why do they want to build the Keystone XL uh, a pipeline from the tar sands in Canada into the United States? The trend is not towards cleaner fuel. The trend is not, we're scared, so we're going to start cleaning up. The trend is exactly in the wrong direction. I think there's about 22 applications uh, right now before the state to open up natural gas-fired power plants. Natural gas is not a clean fuel. It's a fossil fuel. So there's, you know, I just want to, I just want to emphasize here that we've got a real serious situation on our hands, and I think we need to take the most effective and direct measures to do that. Now, to say it's 20%, I just, you know, I understand what you're saying. We support most of the measures in AB 32. We're down with the clean renewable, uh, you know, with a renewable portfolio standard. We want to see it increase beyond 33%. We want to ensure that the benefits of that new infrastructure get into the communities, poor communities in, in the cities and in the rural areas. So that's a fight that still has to be waged. You know, we're for the clean car standards. We'd like to have seen them be stronger, but we're for that stuff. So I don't want to, I think we should just kind of take that argument off the table. But when we say 20%, that's almost nearly all industrial sources, and that's where folks live, in San Diego, in Riverside, in San Jose. That's where the poor folks that we're talking about live. And we can't, you know, really, Kristen, I know you don't mean it that way, but to say, well, you know, maybe it's not going to get a reduction at Richmond, but it'll get overall reductions. We're saying there's a way to actually get those reductions so everybody can benefit. There's a way to do it. And, you know, if and that what means specifically that, is that way? That, it's a regulatory way. It's so a regulatory. Which we're direct, so we're, direct uh, regulations will do it. So it's it's we shouldn't be afraid to say, okay, we're at eighty percent regular uh, regulatory system. Let's make it a hundred percent. If that's going to maximize the benefits for California's res, for for California's poorest residents and for the state as a whole. So that's what we're arguing. And when we're talking about racism, it's not like we're saying somebody, Kristen or the members of the ARB, are intentionally racist. That they got a Klan robe at home. It's what is the actual impact of the decision? Who is impacted? Is it rich white folks in Beverly Hills? Hell no. It's poor African Americans, Laotians, and Latinos in Richmond. That's who's going to be impacted by these decisions. And so we're saying whether, whatever the intention may have been, the intention may have been sincere about, you know, this is going to be the best thing for California, but the impact is racial. And we don't know what else to call that. Well, I'm Bill? glad to hear you won't be raiding my house for my Klux uh, robe. No, no, no. Come on. <laughs> Let's not get into that. We're not talking about intent here. Hold we're on. talking about impact. Let me clarify. We have Kristen Eberhard from NRDC, Bill Gallegos from the Communities for a Better Environment, Brent Newell from the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, and Edie Chang from the California Air Resources Board. So, Bill Gallegos, are you saying... Cap and trade cannot be modified satisfactorily. It has to go. You want regulatory only. There's no way that the cap and cap and trade. Let's can keep be modi- the cap. Okay. Let's keep let's, so let's the let's trade go cap part. and regulate. We're just saying, if it's good for 80 percent, why not 100 percent? I mean, if it's so great over in this, this other 80 percent of the measures are regulatory. Why do we say stop there and let's just let the you know the big power plants and the oil refineries into this riskier system? 
Edie Chang? Well, and, and actually, I want to kind of back up because we've talked a lot about sort of, you know, the pollution burden in California. And, you know, the Air Resources Board is a public health agency. For over 40 years, what we've been doing is reducing air pollution in California. And we've had amazing, amazing successes. I grew up in Southern California in Riverside, actually, in the 70s. And the difference between what we see now and what we saw then is astounding. It, 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 I was actually talking to somebody at work who has worked for the board for about 30 years. <laughs> and well, it's it's so much better than it used to be. Still and, hasn't met the... And, and I'm not and, 90 health-based standards. No, I'm not ozone. saying, and I'm not saying that it's perfect. Okay, I, there are regions on. and there are communities where the air quality is unacceptably bad. I, I think that we would all agree with that. Um, but I think that we've also been looking at. I think that to look at the cap and trade program or even the climate program in isolation of all the other things that we're doing at the Air Resources Board to address the public health problem, I think it's sort of it, it, you're, you're sort of setting this this program up when you look at you know when you look at the risk in california 75 percent of the risk from air toxics is from diesel rail yards uh, ports freeways these are huge concentrations of diesel emissions we've reduced emissions uh, we've reduced emissions of diesel at our largest ports and rail yards by 50 percent in the last five years we're seeing amazing, amazing improvements in these areas. And I'm not saying we're done. I'm not saying that we should be satisfied. But I'm also saying that we have to look at the broader program that we have out there to really target the sources that are affecting the, that are affecting the risk in these localized communities and that are really sort of the source of the big health problems in these localized communities. Let's get Brennan and Bill. Do you agree that the diesel pollution has been reduced 50% in five years? Is that a well, I, absolutely know. not? I, just <laughs> I just in so. <laughs> just in December, the Air Resources Board drastically rolled back <clears throat> this diesel regulation that is supposed to protect public health, and it, it increased the amount of exposure that communities who are living next to freeways would face. Um, their resources board has a myth that they're this great regulatory entity that can do no wrong. The, the facts on the ground is that they haven't met the one-hour ozone standard in the South Coast Air Base in Los Angeles area or the San Joaquin Valley. That is the ozone standard that was in place when Congress amended the Clean Air Act in 1990. They had over 20 years to meet this standard, and they haven't. They didn't meet the PM10 standard on time in the San Joaquin Valley. The, the problem is that, you know, while, while you've taken steps towards reducing mm-hmm. emissions, the political pressure that has been thrown at the Air Resources Board to the pushback you've gotten from industry has forced the Air Resources Board to slow down when it comes to criteria pollutant emissions. And one of my biggest concerns is that as this cap goes down, and as the rubber starts meeting the road, that there's going to be massive pushback from industry. There's going to be massive political pressure placed on the Air Resources Board, and I think you all are going to fold, just like you did with the diesel rule just a few months ago. Well, I think that that's, you know, actually, could I jump in? Um, Kristen Everhard. So, Brent, you've just said that the Air Resources Board, in attempting to pursue direct regulations that would improve air quality, has not succeeded in a way that they, that I mean, we all would hope that they have. On the other hand, you've said that the solution for AB 32 is to have direct regulations implemented by the Air Resources Board. 
that seems to be a problem. If you, if you feel that Air Resources Board is, is not able to implement solutions in the way that you want, but you want the solution to be them implementing the direct regulations, there's a little bit of a conflict there. And I, I just want to get a little bit more into both you and, and Bill have talked about cap and no trade, right? That cap and no trade is, is the solution. You know, it, you get the guaranteed cap going down, but you don't get the trade, which is the risk to, um, to, to communities. Um, so I just want to dig down and, and say how that would work. How cap and no trade would work is that the Air Resources Board would have to go out and put an individual cap on every individual polluter in the state. And right now there's about 600 facilities, I think, that are in the cap and trade program. So the Air Resources Board, who is understaffed and, and has a huge amount of political pressure on them, as Brent has noted, would need to find the resources and the political willpower to go out to every single one of these 600 facilities, put a cap on them, and enforce it. And, you know, if one of those facilities is Chevron and Chevron is pushing back, um, I just don't see how that is going to be feasible for the Air Resources Board to come up with those resources or to fight the political pressure that is going to be on them. On the other hand, the cap-and-trade program, what we can say from how it's being implemented now is um, because there is this cap, and bear with me, I'm going to use a reference that maybe is earlier than some of the people in the audience. But the original Star Wars, you know, not, not Natalie Portman. Um, the original Star Wars were Han Solo and Princess Leia in the trash compactor. Yeah, is this ringing any bells? They're in a the trash compactor, right? And the trash compactor, the yeah. walls are like coming in on them, right? And they're like, oh my God, we're going to die. This is the cap for Chevron. That cap is coming in on them, and it is coming down on them year after year after year. And they have to figure out what they're going to do. And if it were just CARB, sorry to mix my metaphors, but I'm going to go to a slightly different metaphor. It's If there were a subway car, for example, and CARB is the policeman coming around and saying, you know, have you paid your fare? Have you paid your fare? There's an out for Chevron there. They can bring political pressure to bear. They can, they can you know, they can push back on CARB. They can leave the subway car, Right. In the trash compactor, there's no out. They're in it. And that's what we're finding is that, 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 that these regulated facilities are realizing the cap is not changing. And so they're sort of fighting amongst themselves for a little bit of space inside that trash compactor. Um, but they're not getting out of that cap. Well, the, the problem with Kristen's analogy is that right R2-D2 actually stopped the trash compactor. <laughs> and they got out. And, and that's my point. Okay. <laughs> I was seven when Star Wars came out. I remember R2-D2 got them out of there. They didn't get squashed. Um, Kristen, you make this point about direct regulations aren't going to work as good as cap-and-trade. And you have no evidence to make that point. It, you have a hypothesis. You don't have a theory. And you don't have facts. Brett, no, I, I, wait, sorry. I just, I, I, I just, one more time. I feel like a broken record. But I have said 80% regulation. That is what I support. I have not said regulations don't work. I have not said we shouldn't have regulations in this program. I've said 80% regulations to guarantee, to say to every single refinery, you have to improve your processes, you have to reduce your emissions. And then on top of that, on top of that, you're also going to pay for every unit of pollution. And those two together saying you have to do what you know how to do now, and this price is going to push you to do what you don't know how to do now and to get to the next level in the next 10 years. That combination is what I support. I, I have not said that I don't think regulations work. I've said regulations plus a price. 
Let's get the audience in on this conversation. Uh, we'll put a microphone right here and invite you to, uh, to join the fun, jump in the fray here. Um, would it be all right if I just say a little bit um, on I, – I, I just want to clarify that we've never said that the regulatory system is nirvana or it solves all the problems because clearly there's problems, and it's always a fight. Um, you know, we're one of those power concedes nothing without a demand – and we know that this is, a, you know, that any system that's in place requires extensive democratic oversight and input from the people who are impacted. That's why we focus on building social movements, actually, and on not filing lawsuits. So we, we concede that. And, you know, in Riverside, I just want to say, Edie, that, you know, the latest diesel study says there that they have a cancer rate from diesel emissions of 3,000 per million. Okay. It's just horrendous. And it's just horrendous. So... I don't know what it was. Maybe it was 6,000 when you were back in the day, but it's that's horrendous. And I think that's a good so, example. Of so I just want to say that, you know, there's a long way for us to go. And definitely. we're just saying we have some, some chance to do that. And, um, you know, our particular area of expertise, one of our areas of expertise really is in the refinery industry. And it, we think let's take the whole industry. You don't have to take it facility by facility. Let's take it by industry. We have a number of different measures, and if they want our advice, we'd be glad to help them figure it out, how they can reduce their emissions to meet, probably exceed the requirements of AB 32 by 2020. We can do it, and, we, and those measures are in the record. So it's not like it's obscure or complex or difficult. It can be done. The resources are they certainly have the resources to do it. We need the political will. That's where the cap comes in. You have to do it. And we're saying, oh, by the way, that's going to have a real significant impact for folks that live in San Pedro and El Segundo and Richmond and every other place, Rodeo, the places where poor folks are, are, have to live around these refineries. So we think it can be done. Uh, but, you know, we're not saying, you know, is AB 32 going to end racial inequality in California? I want to make sure, don't please don't caricature our position. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we have... an we have an opportunity to do something about it, something significant, something important. But we're not claiming that it's going to solve all the problems in our schools and everything else that are going on. Bill Gallegos is Executive Director of the Communities for a Better Environment. Our other guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are Brent Newell, General Counsel for Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, Christian Eberhardt, a Western Legal Director for Natural Resources Defense Council, and Edie Chang from the Office of Climate Change at the California Air Resources Board. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our question, please. Hi, Sean Donovan from San Francisco. First, two quick questions. One for Brent. You, I think I heard you say that the vast majority of emissions reductions could be met with offsets, but I thought it was limited to 8%. And number two for Bill Gallegos, um, you mentioned that Chevron could create sustainable forestry projects in Oaxaca, What's wrong with that? Uh, if you want to help poor communities of color, Oaxaca might be a really good place to start because they're much poorer than people in Richmond, and the deforestation is often be- being driven by poverty. So let's get Brent and then Bill. Yeah, that is an excellent question, the, the thing about the 8%. That's 8% of the compliance obligation. And when you translate that to how much emissions are required under the cap, it turns out to be most of the emissions that facilities have to do to meet their cap obligations. So okay. it's there's some really interesting math going on. It's worth noting that before the scoping plan came out, Mary Nichols, the chair of the Air Resources Board, said, there isn't going to be any offsets. There isn't going to be any offsets. Okay, a few months later, the draft scoping plan comes out. 4% offsets are allowed. 
So a little political pressure came down. Some industries needed some relief. They needed to get some emission reduction credits that were going to be cheap. What happened later when the final draft scoping plan came out? It went up to 8%. So offsets are a huge problem. And Kirsten, you'd agree that offsets are a huge problem and a huge vulnerability to the cap-and-trade system that makes it really, really dangerous. So I, I, need, to explain, oh, I, I need to explain this math a, a, a little bit. <laughs> so when we talk about offsets, what they are, they're emission reductions that happen in sectors that aren't covered under the cap. So these are real emission reductions. Kristen mentioned there's four sort of sets of rules of how you generate these offsets. They can only happen in the U.S. right now. Right now. Right now. They can only happen in the U.S. There is a provision in the regulation that you could expand it to foreign countries, but there's a whole regulatory process that would have to happen before we could do that right now. So Brent was talking before about how he was concerned that when the pressure gets tough on the cap-and-trade program, you're going to cave. One of the things that we've been trying to do as we design the program is to make sure that when the pressure gets tough because the prices are getting high, we've designed the program so that we're still going to get emission reductions even when that happens. The only way that offsets become most of the emission reductions in the cap-and-trade program is if the prices start getting really, really high and we start using, we have sort of, uh, we have kind of a, a reserve of really high-priced allowances. And if we start tapping into those, that's when the emission reduction, that's when offsets become a bigger, bigger part of the pie. So what we're trying to ensure is that even when we get that, per, when, even when the program starts getting stressed and we're starting to worry about that, that we're still seeing those emission reductions. Let's get Bill Gallegos on the second part. What's wrong with uh, international programs? That yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, uh, um, the uh, U.S. environmental justice movement has pretty extensive contacts with environmental justice and indigenous movements in uh, the global south. And what we've heard from them is that offsets are really bad. And they say, look, uh, what they do is they come into indigenous lands. Nobody asks us. So let's take Chevron. This big North American corporation, multinational corporation, trillion-dollar operation, comes in and says, we're going to plant 5,000 acres of trees. Well, maybe they, ha- they want 5,000 acres of corn, or maybe they don't want it touched. Maybe they have some other use for it. There's no sovereignty. There's no democratic decision-making process. So that, I think that's the main problem is, you know, that's, it, it exacerbates those kinds of problems which are going in the relationship between the global north and the global south. And that's happened. So it's not, it's not theoretical. The second thing is, okay, how do we figure equivalency? All right, so uh, Chevron could say, you know, if we could say, if you install this technology, we can tell you exactly what your emission reductions are going to be. They say, we're not going to do that. We're going to get the equivalent amount of reductions by planting these 5,000 acres of trees. And in 20 years, they're going to sprout, and they're going to capture this carbon. Well, who's going to measure that? I mean, how do we really know what the equivalency is? I mean, there's just, why adopt a system that's so speculative, so risky, when there's a way to do it that's better. So I think those are some of the problems with it. And then there's the problem of even monitoring. Who's going to monitor that? Did they really plant the 5,000 acres of trees or did they not? Because in some cases where, the, where they've done this program, they went out and checked and they said the offset program hadn't actually happened. They were gaming the system. So it just seems like we don't need to kind of do this kind of dodgy kind of program when there's a better way to do it. There is third-party certification sometimes for offsets. That's, that's a whole other issue. Let's, yeah, uh, let's pay let's somebody else off instead of just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the way to go. 
Uh, next question, please. Okay. My name is Joe Westerson. I work for the Environmental Protection Agency here, but I'm just asking the question uh, from a personal perspective. So we've been talking about two different kinds of pollution. as greenhouse gas pollution that has mostly a global effect, and we're also talking about the local effects of NOx, nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, toxics that have a very local effect on those communities. And I want to ask, to what degree are those connected? Like if we did a direct regulation, for example, on a facility for greenhouse gases, to what degree would that result in reduction of those local air pollutants? How connected are those two? Very connected. Um, so that's uh, part of the, the tension in talking about this bill is that its, its main purpose is to reduce global warming pollution. Um, but global warming pollutants normally come from combusting fossil fuels, and when that happens, these other pollutants come out um, that also impact the health of people in the community. So that's why um, these have gotten tied together, that we're trying to reduce global warming pollution, but we have an opportunity at the same time to help improve health. Right. And... and- in adopting AB 32, the legislature specifically recognized that connection, and it included several provisions in the law that says, you know, this bill is not supposed to or is not going to exacerbate uh, toxic or criteria pollutant emissions, and it's not going to exacerbate environmental injustice. So there's, there's some very important provisions in the bill that make it not just a carbon bill. Next audience question, please. Hi, my name is Jessica Tovar. I live in San Francisco. I'm originally from East Los Angeles. And my question is for Edie. If the California Air Resources Board has learned its lesson from the European Union, then why are you allowing free allocations to refineries and the use of secret industry data for measuring whether they are in compliance, which is also known as the Solomon Index? So the European Union, when they alloc- so the European Union allocated, they did uh, free allocations, and one of the big issues in the European Union was sort of the windfall profit issue. They had folks, as Kristen said, we didn't know how many uh, they didn't know how many emissions they had. They got their allocations. What we're doing is actually transitioning in California from a mostly free allocation system into a mostly auction system. And so we wanted to make sure that we gave everybody that who was going to be covered by the regulation an opportunity to get used to sort of how this system works and a transition into a system in which everyone's going to have to buy the allowances for all of the pollution they emit. So when we start the program, the first compliance obligation year is 2013. And when we start the program, there's a fairly significant amount of free allocation that industries get. And then over time, it reduces, and it actually reduces fairly quickly. Starting in 2015, you only get like 25% of what you would get in 2013. So we're basically transitioning into a system where everybody's going to be auction, everybody's going to have to purchase their allowances at auction. So the way that we give away these uh, these allowances, it's based on efficient, it's based on how efficient every and in, in every individual sector is. Um, in the refinery sector, we're look, we were looking at the best way to look at our refineries and how complex those refineries are. So the system that we're proposing to use in the regulation, it's a Solomon index. It's a system that um, all of the oil refineries put, they all report their information in, and it looks at every individual process that you have at that refinery. Um, we will have the ability to look at that information. So that's actually part of what we've worked out is that so we will have the ability, but there is, and there is, this is true for actually 
many, many sectors, there is confidential business information that is used to provide the allowances to folks. Um, that's information that in lots of other things that we do, it's um, we do have to be able to hold that information confidential, but we do have the ability to take a look at that and audit it and make sure that we think that it so that we can confirm with other sources that it actually is good information. Edie Chang was with the Office of Climate Change at the California Air Resources Board. Edie, quickly before we wrap up here, uh, if I recall correctly, the Air Resources Board wanted to actually have fewer giveaway allowances, and it was because of the political pressure that Brent mentioned earlier that prompted the ARB, the Air Resources Board, to give more away free in the beginning. Is that right? Well, I, I don't know that I would characterize that way. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't. I mean, I think I think that we recognize that you need to have a transition from a system. But in you which started out at a different place with fewer giveaways in the beginning. I don't know that that's true. Yeah. I, I really, I don't know. I actually, they, I don't think that they that's didn't true. Start out with free uh, allowance giveaways, and they didn't start out with offsets. Okay. So we've been down that path. I just want to clarify that. Uh, where is this going to go from here? Uh, Brent Newell, real quickly, uh, this is still in the courts. Quickly, where is this going to end up? Uh, next step in court, you won one, California won one. Correct. Well, we, we obtained an injunction against ARB from implementing cap and trade until they considered other policy alternatives. Um, ARB immediately went to the Court of Appeals and said, this is going to really hurt us. Please um, stay the trial court's injunction. Because if we don't get cap and trade, then the environment's really going to suffer in 2012. Um, five days after the Court of Appeals agreed with them, um, uh, ARB announced that they were going to delay the enforcement and implementation of cap and trade until 2013. Um, so what's happening now is we filed a appeal with the California Supreme Court, arguing that there is no harm, that uh, ARB should have uh, stopped implementing cap and trade while it considered alternatives. And what ended up happening? was that they ended up moving forward with their cap-and-trade rule because they got this stay, and they ended up supposedly doing a consideration of other alternatives, which, if you think about it, if you're uh, cooking bacon and eggs and getting ready to flip your eggs, um, and you're supposed to be considering what else you're going to have for breakfast, are you really going to not eat your bacon and eggs? Can I say that? Last word, Kristen Eberhard. I know that we've uh, been focusing on our disagreements, but I just want to take a step back and say that everybody on this uh, table really agrees on a lot. We agree that we want to reduce global warming pollution, we want to move towards a clean energy economy, and we want to try and maximize um, the benefit, the health benefits that we can get for local communities at the same time that we're doing that. Um, the place where we disagree is given the political pressure that's on the agency, given the limitations that are on the agency, What's the best plan to help us move forward? And um, the, the plan that we think is a good one is having regulations that say you have to have cleaner cars, you have to have cleaner power plants, you have to have cleaner refineries, and also having a cap that says you have to keep going down and it's going to cost more to pollute. We have to end it there. Kristen uh, Eberhardt is a lawyer with Natural Resources Defense Council. Other guests today have been Edie Chang with the Office of Climate Change at the California Air Resources Board, Bill Gallegos, Executive Director of Communities for a Better Environment, and Brent Newell, General Counsel at the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our listeners on the radio and our audience here at San Francisco at Climate One. Thank you all for coming. And thank you all for coming. Thank you.